Welcome to River Fellowship Podcast. At River Fellowship, we strive to experience God, exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage the world. This week, lead pastor Daryl Anderson takes us through Luke 1, verses 26-33. The birth of Jesus is the ultimate expression and manifestation of God's kingdom. Through Jesus, we can experience and enjoy kingdom living. If you'd like to learn more about River Fellowship, go to rfamarillo.org. Let me invite you to turn to Luke 1. With Christmas approaching, we want to continue to kind of look at uh, the birth of Christ, the significance of the birth of Jesus. This morning, I want to put it in a little different context, maybe, come from a little different perspective than what we typically think of at Christmas. It's not really anything new. I'm not saying anything new. I just want to express the birth of Jesus in a, in a a context that we don't always think about around Christmas time. So let's look at Luke chapter one. We pick it up at verse 26. It's the birth of Jesus being foretold. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will never end. I want to talk this morning about the endless kingdom. And the key phrase, the key word here is verse 33, his kingdom will never end. So we're talking about a kingdom that will never end and the birth of Jesus really is all about kingdom. The Bible's not simply a, a, a collection of great and inspiring stories, even though there are a lot of great and inspiring stories in the word. Neither is it simply a compilation of random books, by random authors over a long period of time, just kind of thrown together, each book kind of giving its own perspective and its own storyline on God. Now, Scripture is many books with many authors over many years, but it's not random. There is a fluid message throughout the text of Scripture, and the fluidity of the, of the passage is this. It's describing and detailing the kingdom. Scripture calls it the kingdom of God. It also calls it the kingdom of heaven. So what we see here, when we look through Scripture, through this lens of kingdom, it helps us see the continuity and the connection and the fluidity of Scripture all the way from Genesis through Revelation. In Greek, the Greek word for kingdom means rule or authority. So we're talking about the authority of God, the rule of God, the authority of Christ, and the rule of Christ. So when we get to Luke chapter one, if we read this foretelling of his birth through the lens of kingdom, it makes a lot of sense with some of the wording that he uses. Verse 33, he says, he will reign forever. Every king reigns. His kingdom will never end. Verse 32, he'll be given a throne. Every kingdom has a king, has a throne. Verse 32, he'll be great. 
That word uh, is a, a word of degree. It means superior, far better, far more powerful. In other words, there's no one like him. He is the king of kings in his kingdom. He's the son of the most high. Verse 31 said his name will be called Jesus. That word Jesus means God saves. So he's coming as the king to rule his kingdom. So in that concept, we give a little bit different picture. Now, the concept of kingdom, just for some background, is all through the scripture. In fact, really the first time we see it is what I call the time before time, the beginning before the beginning, before time and creation as we know it, we see the concept of kingdom. In Revelation 12, John is, is witnessing this in his vision, then he writes it down. It's a war between Michael and the, the heavenly angels, the godly angels, against the dragon or against Satan, Lucifer, and the angels that he has gotten on his side. And in the vision, uh, Michael and his angels win the victory and they hurl down the dragon and his angels. And so John pins after that, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ. Right there we see on the onset the authority of Christ established even before anything else takes place. We see it in the Old Testament in a variety of places. Daniel 7 is one place where Daniel's seeing a vision as well. And in his vision, he says, the ancient of days, which is Jesus, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power over all peoples and all nations worshiped him. And his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom that will never be destroyed. Interestingly, we see it in the New Testament, early in the New Testament. You remember John the Baptist. Uh, he's the relative of Jesus. He's born six months before Jesus. And when he begins to preach and proclaim the message, his job was to prepare the way for Jesus. In his very first message in Matthew 3, 2, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus picks up on that at the beginning of his ministry, early in his days of ministry, right after the temptation, Jesus begins to preach. And one of his very first messages in Mark 1, 15, he says, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. So repent and believe the good news. So Jesus just follows right along with John the Baptist and talks about the kingdom. Interestingly, the very last conversation that Jesus has with anybody before the cross, now he talks to the thief on the cross, but before he gets to the cross, the last conversation before the cross, he's talking to Pilate and he talks about the kingdom as well. Pilate's asking him if he's a king and are you setting up a kingdom, et cetera. And Jesus responds in John 18, 36, yes, but my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is from another place. So it's interesting to me that one of the first messages of Christ is about kingdom. And one of the last conversations with Christ is about kingdom. So what we're seeing here is that God is the authority and the ruler of the greatest kingdom, the kingdom that will never end. Every earthly kingdom that has come has gone. And every kingdom that will come afterward will come and go. But the kingdom of God, what scripture declares, never ends. So when you get to Luke 1 and you see the birth of Jesus in this context, what you're seeing is the ultimate expression of kingdom. You're seeing the ultimate manifestation of kingdom. You're seeing the kingdom of God literally and physically come into earth. So, when you put that in the historical context and you see Jesus as king and as ruler, it makes even more sense of why the Roman Empire has such a problem with Jesus coming as king. When Jesus is declared king of the Jews, at that time, everyone's thinking an earthly kingdom. 
So that's why Herod, King Herod, when he talks to the, the wise men, remember the story of the Magi? They come, they're looking for Jesus. And so Herod says, hey, when you find him, come back and let me know where he is so I can worship him. Well, we all know Herod didn't want to worship him. He wanted to, to kill him. Why? Because he's understanding the concept of kingdom. And if this is a king that's going to set up a kingdom, then I want to destroy that king before he has a chance to set up his kingdom, which was a, a normal practice back in that day. It also explains why Pilate, right before the crucifixion of Christ, is asking Jesus the same stuff. Are you a king? Are you setting up a kingdom? Are you trying to overthrow the Roman Empire and the Roman, Roman government? And Jesus, to Pilate's response, really says, well, yes and no. <laughs> yes, I am a king. But no, I'm not the kind of king you're thinking about. My king's not of this world. So what we're seeing here is in the birth of Christ is the reinforcement of the concept of kingdom. Now, with all of that as kind of foundation and background, the question we have to ask ourselves is, so what does that mean to me? How does that apply to me? Okay, I get the concept of kingdom, but is there anything practical that I can take home? Is there anything that we can grab hold of that will make a difference and an impact in our life as we see this in the context of kingdom? Obviously, I think there is. I don't want to share with you some four, just four practical applications, four truths, if you will, four things that we can grab onto that apply to this concept of kingdom that can make a difference in our, in our, in our life and in our walk with Christ if we'll grab hold of it. Here's the first one. Don't miss the kingdom of God. Don't miss the kingdom of God. Here's the historical context again. You have the Roman Empire, you have the Roman Kingdom, and at that day, when people thought about a kingdom, they thought about an earthly kingdom. That's all they knew about. That's all they understood. That's all they had ever seen. All that they had ever experienced was this concept of an earthly kingdom. So if Jesus is the king of the Jews, then the Romans obviously are thinking, okay, here comes a kingdom gonna overthrow the Roman Empire. So for the Jews as well, they're thinking the same thing. When they're thinking about the Messiah back in that day, they're thinking of one that's going to come as the king and overthrow the government and set up an earthly reign, and they're going to get to reign as the Jewish people. All they think about is earthly kingdom. Because of that, many Jews couldn't get that concept out of their head, out of their mind. So when Jesus begins to talk a little bit differently and things don't play out the way they're thinking, then it kind of messes things up and it causes some problems. Here's some examples. In Judaism, there were a variety of groups, groupings of people. One of them were called the Herodians. And the Herodians had assimilated themselves into Roman life. They had become loyal to Rome. It was kind of that mantra, you can't beat them, might as well join them. So they didn't think they could overthrow them, so they just kind of joined the Roman Empire and they assimilated themselves into the life of, of Rome. Well, then you had the zealots and they were just the opposite. They were militant fundamentalists and they wanted to oppose and attack Rome at, at any opportunity that they could get. The Essenes were another group and they were monastic in nature. Um, they didn't fight against Rome. They didn't assimilate into Rome. They had kind of more of a mindset of, hey, let's kind of isolate ourselves from all this other stuff and let's just pursue holiness. Many of them lived in caves and out in the desert and etc. <coughs> cetera. 
You also had the Pharisees, which we all hear a lot about. The Pharisees were the keepers of the law. And really their primary job early on was to keep Israel pure for the coming of the Messiah. So you had these kind of groups. Well, as a result, the Herodians, when, if you put this in context now regarding Jesus, the Herodians were expecting Jesus to come set up a political alliance, if you will, with Rome, to come and join Rome politically, and the two of them could join together and they could reign in one big government. Well, the zealots were just the opposite. They expected Jesus to come and amass an army and just come against Rome and defeat Rome and set up their own kingdom. Well, the Essenes, they expected Jesus to kind of pull everybody out over here by themselves, kind of in a communal environment, and let's just pursue holiness together. Well, the Pharisees obviously expected Jesus to toe the line, the religious system, and keep the law and, and do this religious system that they had set up. So when Jesus didn't do any of those things, all of these people are saying, wait a minute, he must not be the Messiah. What's the problem? The problem is they had in their heart and in their mind, they're thinking who Jesus is and what this kingdom is going to be like. And so when the kingdom wasn't what they expected, they couldn't make the transition. And as a result, they missed the kingdom of God because of the way they were thinking. We can make the same mistake today. We can make the mistake of missing the kingdom of God because of the way we're thinking. There are some people that think, you know, God's not real. God doesn't really exist. There is no God. Well, if you think that way, you're gonna miss the kingdom of God. There are some who say, ah, heaven's not real. It's a fairy tale. It's just a crutch. Well, if you believe that, you're gonna miss the kingdom of heaven. Some people say, no, Jesus isn't Lord. Jesus isn't the Savior. Jesus is not the way to heaven. Jesus isn't God. Jesus is just a good teacher. He's just another person. In fact, there's a lot of other ways to get to God. If you think that way, you're going to miss the kingdom of Christ. So the practical application for us here is don't miss the kingdom. Sometimes we can miss what God is doing because we don't think God's going to work that way. Sometimes we miss what God is saying to us because we don't think God would speak that way. Sometimes we miss who God really is because we just don't think he would be like that. And because of our stinking thinking, we end up missing the kingdom of God. So the first application is don't miss the kingdom of God. But let's take it a step deeper, a step forward. Here's the second one. Desire the kingdom of God. Don't just don't miss it but desire the kingdom of God. We've all seen these situations where you get two alpha males together and they're trying to vie for authority and power and control. You see it in the animal kingdom. You also see it in the human kingdom. These two alpha males, okay. What happens? Conflict. What happens if you get two political parties coming against one another and they both want to be the ultimate authority and make the decisions? We see that in our country all the time. What happens? There's conflict. It's kingdom conflict. So anytime you get two kingdoms vying against one another and they both want ultimate authority, what happens? You have what I call kingdom conflict. Well, there are many believers today in kingdom conflict because the reality is there are two kingdoms vying for our affection. 
There's the kingdom of this world. We know the ultimate ruler is Satan himself. Then there's the kingdom of God, who God is the ultimate ruler. And both of these kingdoms are vying for our affection and for our passion. So there are some believers who because they don't want to make a decision which one they want to be loyal to, they're trying to live within both of these kingdoms. They're trying to walk in the midst of both of these kingdoms and it's just not working out. They're experiencing kingdom conflict. Now we all know about Texarkana. Everybody's heard of Texarkana, right? You have Texarkana, Texas, Texarkana, Arkansas. It's one community, but it's two distinct towns. Well, I ran across even a better example this week, uh, McKaysville, Georgia, and Copper Hill, Tennessee. That's one town with two names. In fact, the nickname of that is the city with, or it's actually the town with two names. It's one town, Coppersville and McKaysville, Georgia, Tennessee. Allegedly, I've, I've seen this, I've never been to these cities, so I don't know if it's true, but allegedly, I've seen pictures Allegedly, there's a blue line that actually goes through that town dividing Georgia from Tennessee. And that line goes through parking lots. It goes through buildings. It goes through people's businesses. It even goes through people's houses. And so you could be eating in your dining room in Georgia and go to bed in your room in Tennessee. So you have this division. So if you're in Georgia... You don't get to enjoy all the, 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 the perks of Tennessee. If you're a Tennessee citizen, you don't get to be in Georgia. And so you have all these families in this community confused. Okay, am I in Tennessee or am I in Georgia? Now I have to abide by Georgia. Now I'm about to, and it just creates this huge mess in, those, in that town. This is a great picture of a lot of believers today. They're trying to live in both kingdoms. It's almost as if they have a blue line just dividing them. And they're trying to be loyal to the kingdom of this world and at the same time be loyal to the kingdom of God. They're trying to enjoy the perks of the kingdom of this world and enjoy the perks of the kingdom of God. And you just can't do that. We can't live in the kingdom of this world and expect to experience the blessings of the kingdom of heaven. Why do you think Paul preaches so much about worldliness? It's because that's not of his kingdom. It's part of the kingdom of this world. And he understands the difference that it causes in our life. When we desire the things of this world, we're actually desiring something that's not part of God's kingdom. The tragedy for some believers is we want a little bit of Jesus and a lot of the world. William Booth, you may recognize that name, he's the founder of Salvation Army. Uh, a century ago, not this past century, but a century ago, he made a prediction and made a statement regarding the coming uh, century. And he says, the chief danger confronting us in this coming century is religion without the Holy Spirit Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. Let that set in for a moment. 
talks about what we're talking about here. We want the perks of salvation and forgiveness in heaven, but we don't want the other side of it. So we're trying to, to walk the line and live in both worlds. Some want to reside in the earthly kingdom, but they want to retire in the heavenly kingdom. Some people enjoy a vacation in the heavenly kingdom on a Sunday morning, but then they want to go back into their worldly kingdom and live. We can't do that. What, what he's saying here is we have to make a choice of which one we're going to desire. Our desire and our pursuit must be for Christ in the kingdom. That's why Jesus says himself in Matthew 6, 33, what? Seek ye first his kingdom, and then everything else will come. See, the reason we try to live in both worlds is we think the world has something to offer us that's really great, and we want to participate in it. We want to enjoy it. So we're trying to vie for that. But what Scripture tells us is just the opposite. There's not anything that the world has to offer that's any good. But God is just the opposite. And he satisfies us with good things. Psalms 103.5 says, God will satisfy your desires with good things. The reason he wants, one reason he wants us to pursue him and pursue the kingdom is because he is the one that satisfies all of those longings of our heart. He's the one that will, pro will provide contentment and fulfillment, and peace, and hope, and purpose, all the things that we're longing for, the world can't provide that. The world always leaves us empty, and discouraged, and delusioned, and disappointed. So Christ says, seek first my kingdom, and then I will give you everything that is good that you need. So first, don't miss the kingdom of God because of some weird things you're thinking. Secondly, desire the kingdom of God, which leads us to the third deeper aspect, and that's to dwell in the kingdom of God. Don't just desire the kingdom, but dwell in the kingdom of God. What does that mean? How do we dwell in the kingdom of God? When it comes to kingdom living, um, I've categorized five aspects of kingdom living. Earthly kingdom, just in general, living inside what we call, we call a kingdom. You have an ultimate ruler. You have provision, protection, uh, service, and loyalty. Okay? So if we were to break those down in a kingdom, first you have an ultimate ruler. In a kingdom, there is a king, and he is the ultimate ruler. And he has dictates and laws and decrees that are non-negotiable. Uh, you, you can't negotiate it. He, he sets them out and he says, this is how you live. If you're to live in my reign and in my kingdom, here are the laws and here are the rules. You have the ultimate ruler. But attached to that, you also get the kingdom's provision and protection. They provide for you and the kingdom will protect you. That's why you see uh, with Paul, if you remember the story when Paul's about to be scourged and beaten, Paul says, hey, wait a minute, do you do this to Roman citizens? And all the soldiers stop. Why? Because there were certain rights as a Roman citizen, protection, if you will. But then on the flip side, you have service. Those within the kingdom would serve the kingdom. They would serve the king. In fact, there would be even times where the king would dictate what your job and your role would be in the kingdom, and that would be your role. But then you have loyalty. The king expects you to pledge allegiance to him as king and to the kingdom. Now, if you transfer all of that spiritually now to Christ and us dwelling 
in the kingdom, you have these same five dynamics. One, you have the ultimate ruler, which is Jesus Christ. And he has certain rules and certain plans, a way for us to live, and they're (laughs) non-negotiable. He just says, if you want to live in my reign and experience what I have to offer, this is how you do it. But then with that, we get his provision. Philippians 4.19 says, my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. Scripture says, I've never seen God's people begging for bread. He'll supply and provide everything that we need. Thirdly, we get to live under the protection of the king. He protects us from our ultimate enemy. But on the flip side of that, there is the concept of service where the king expects us to walk in our service and serve the kingdom and pledge our loyalty to the king. So what do I mean when I say we need to dwell in the kingdom? That means I surrender to the king. I surrender my will and my desire and my passion to the king. Whatever the king wants to do with me, I'm available. I'll serve wherever the king wants me to serve. I pledge my ultimate allegiance to the king of kings and he has my heart, he has my passion, he has my devotion. And as a result, I get to live within the provision and the protection of the king. So when you see this, and again, in the context of Luke 1, the birth of Jesus, when you see this in the context now, it's interesting that, that he's born in this very specific time in history because it's during the Roman Empire, the Roman Kingdom. And what was unique uh, with the Roman Kingdom is Caesar thought he was the King, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He declared himself as the Savior of the world. And he declared the Roman Empire as the kingdom that will never end. (laughs) So Jesus comes at that time and that point to say, I don't think so. We'll show you who the King is. We'll show you a kingdom that will never end. We'll show you who the real Savior is. Now you have more understanding as to why King Herod and Pilate and the Roman leadership were so against Jesus and so wanted to destroy Jesus because they're still thinking earthly kingdom. They had still missed the mark. But he says, no, it's my kingdom and it's an everlasting kingdom. So God's calling us not simply to desire his kingdom, but to dwell in it. Which leads us to the final practical application. This one last step deeper. And that's to develop the kingdom of God. That means to expand it. It's talking about expansion as we develop the kingdom of God. Every great kingdom became great through expansion. That's, what, that's part of what made them great. They all had a desire to expand. And Rome was maybe the ultimate expression of that. They wanted to expand the Roman Empire by, by expanding their kingdom. But here's the difference in the two. The earthly kingdoms and the Roman kingdom expanded by force, but God expands by invitation. God doesn't force anything. God doesn't force us to do anything that we don't wanna do. His expansion is not by force, it's by invitation. What that means is God is simply saying, you wanna be in a kingdom that never ends? You want to be a part of a kingdom that will provide your every need? Do you want to be in a part of a kingdom that is led by the king of kings? Here's your invitation. 
So when we make a commitment to develop the kingdom, what we're doing is we're coming alongside the great invitation of God. And as we encounter people in our spheres of influence, we're simply offering the invitation. Would you like to be a part of the kingdom of God? Would you like to be a part of the kingdom where Jesus Christ reigns as sovereign? A kingdom of love and grace and forgiveness and protection and purpose and everlasting life and joy. That's what we do as we develop the kingdom. So, in Luke 1, when Jesus is born, it's more than just the birth of a baby. It's even more than just the fact that I'm saved personally through Christ. It's so much bigger. It's the coming and the realization of a kingdom that he will reign for all of eternity and he desires us to be a part of his kingdom. So here's, here's the bottom line. My prayer for each of us is that we would not miss the kingdom because we're thinking something other than who God really is and what he really does and what he really says. That we would desire the kingdom rather than the wrong kingdom. That we would commit to dwell in that kingdom and that we would be a part of the ambassadors that he's called us to be to develop the kingdom. Would you pray with me? We're gonna sing together here in a few minutes where we're gonna worship the king. So I just invite you as the Christmas season nears, as we focus on the birth of Christ, as many people who really maybe never think about Jesus throughout the year, they're thinking about him now. So maybe God would impress on your heart and your spirit somebody you work with, somebody you live in a neighborhood with, maybe parents of, of students that your children are on teams with, that God might impress upon you to talk to them about Christ and really what the birth of Christ is all about. Father, we thank you that you have come to dwell with us. And even better, you've come to dwell in us. So Father, I pray that your spirit that is in us will continue to speak to us this morning. Whatever part of this message needs to penetrate our heart, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak very specifically to each person, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, that you would minister to us in whatever way you need to this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, or to hear more messages, go to rfamarillo.org. Thanks. Have a great week.